You can be seated. Okay, at this time, we'll go ahead and dismiss uh, the kids who go downstairs for Children's Church. You guys can head on out. And I want to welcome those of you who may be uh, visiting with us this morning. My name is J.D. Summers, and I serve as pastor here at Redemption Hill Church. And if you don't have a copy of the Bible, uh, we have several in the back. We would love to give you one so that you can follow along this morning. We'd also love to send that home with you as our gift to you. So if you would like a copy of the scriptures, raise your hand real quick. Scott uh, will grab one and get it to you real fast. We won't embarrass you or anything. Just want to invite you to participate this morning. Um, as the pastor here, it's my joy to introduce someone to you today. Uh, many of you guys know Stephen Parkin. Uh, Stephen's been with us since we started the church um, about four years ago now as part of our church planting team, and he's served in a variety of capacities. Uh, he works with our, our students, our junior high and high school students. Uh, he's served in music faithfully uh, for many years. Uh, but he's also someone uh, who knows how to faithfully handle the word. And so as we're going through this series this December, um, uh, as we reflect on the birth of Jesus, we want to give different men in our church an opportunity to use their gifts, to sharpen those gifts, to serve and bless you. Uh, and, it, and it's a good thing because it reminds all of us that the church doesn't center around one personality on one person's preaching gifts. Uh, God's word is powerful and it's true. And if God could give his message through the mouth of a mule uh, years ago with Balaam, uh, he can use me. <laughs> He can use Stephen. He can use anyone. But Stephen has labored faithfully to prepare, and so I trust that you'll be blessed. I've appreciated Stephen's ministry in our church, and he's more uh, than a musician and a co-worker. To me, he's a friend, and I trust that you will be encouraged uh, by the work that he's put in uh, preparing to service this morning. So, brother, you pray and, uh, and open the word to us. Absolutely. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning asking that you would bless the reading and preaching of your word, that your truth would be heard and received, that we would seek to behold your glory as you've revealed through scripture, and that you, Lord, would be honored in all these things, Lord, and that through the work of your Holy Spirit, we would be made more like Jesus and less like ourselves. For any who don't know you as their personal Lord and Savior, that they would see their own need and your gracious provision of salvation that is found only in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Last week, Michael started our series through the first two chapters of the Gospel of Matthew that we are doing this Christmas season. And we saw that from the very beginning of this book, Matthew establishes that Jesus fulfills the expectation of an eternal king who brings blessing to the world. This was no small claim to be the long-awaited Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one of the seed of David. There were a lot of prophecies that foretold of the Christ. They spoke about where he would come, about the character of this king and what he would do. It would be insufficient and unsubstantiated to make such an exclusive claim with no evidence to affirm it. But by God's grace, Matthew, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, dives into the story of Jesus to help us as readers see how the birth, the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus confirmed him to be the Savior King that God promised would come. Like all good stories, Matthew starts at the beginning. He lays out a genealogy that connects Jesus legally 
to both King David and the father of the Israelites, Abraham. This affirms his inherent eligibility to be king. Matthew then proceeds to tell the birth of the eternal king who would bring blessing to the whole world. And our text this morning is the Christmas story because Christmas is about the birth of Christ. And in verse 18, in our text in Matthew chapter 1, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. So our aim this morning is to answer a simple question. Why was this text written? Christmas is about the birth of Jesus, and the birth of Jesus is our text. So we need to understand the purpose of this passage and what God is communicating through his servant Matthew. If we can do this, we will understand what Christmas is meant to be about. Conversely, if you don't understand what this passage means, you will totally miss out on what Christmas is about. Sure, you may enjoy the lights, the carols, the gifts, the friends and family and fellowship, but you will miss out on the satisfying and lasting joy that only comes through knowing and embracing God's purpose for the Christmas this year? If we can answer that question, we will find the real reason for the season and the true meaning of Christmas. So although most, if not all of us in this room, are familiar with this passage, I invite you this morning to engage with your heart and your mind so that your joy may be complete this Christmas season. I must warn you, there are several theological truths rooted in our text that volumes of books have been written, but we will only scratch the surface this morning. Doctrine is both vital and valuable, but on Sunday morning, we aim not to merely understand theological theological truths, but to know the God that theology is talking about. What we will see this morning in the book of Matthew, is that he has recorded the birth of the Christ to confirm the unique person and the unique purpose of the Messiah King. But first, Matthew wants to set the scene for us by introducing to us two familiar characters, Joseph and Mary. The elegant nativity scene often misinforms us to believe the hardest thing they endured was to not have any room, and they sat in a semi-sterile stable and laid their head on some golden hay. But in actuality, the events leading up to the birth of the Christ caused a great amount of stress on the already engaged Mary and Joseph. Let's look at this perceived perplexing scandal that Joseph had to deal with. Look with me at Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. This record of Jesus' birth is written from Joseph's perspective, and can you imagine for a second what it would have been or what it would have felt like to deal with such a crushing blow as the news he received? 
Joseph and Mary were betrothed to one another. They were not just engaged in nowadays terms. They were in a committed contract for one another. This is hardcore engagement. There was a down payment. There were preparations made so that a home could be ready. And he was providing a career to provide for this woman that he loved. Do you remember the desire to find that special someone that you could share your life with? Joseph had found that person And he had made commitments to wait for her. Then to find out this person you you thought you knew, you, you thought was waiting for you, is pregnant? How how could she do this to him? It doesn't even make sense to feel so blindsided and betrayed. Imagine the grief and pain of such heartbreak. But what could Joseph do? That's what happened. He's got to respond. What are his options? Seemingly, there was three options that Joseph could take. Option number one, he could publicly shame Mary and pronounce her unfaithfulness to keep her end of the contract. This not only would have been a scarlet letter for the rest of her life, but very well have ended her life altogether. Option number two, discreetly divorce or disengage from the betrothal contract. This would have prevented any life-threatening consequences to Mary, but she would have still suffered the humiliation of her perceived infidelity and scandalous behavior. Or option number three, Joseph could actually proceed with the betrothal contract and marry Mary. This would have been marring to Joseph's own character and been perceived as the act of a man who was guilty himself of intimacy outside the marriage covenant as permitted by God. As we see in our text, Joseph was a just man, a man of both morality and mercy. And he had determined that he would choose option number two. He would get out of this contract, this betrothal, at great loss to himself. Like most of us men, when we're stressed about a really big decision, Joseph takes a nap. He goes to sleep. And scripture says he was considering these things. And then something so emotional and personally taxing, when that happens in our lives, we commonly come to to two questions or two categories of thought. What do I do now? And why did this happen? What now? Why me? Although this record of Jesus' birth is written from Joseph's perspective, we never actually see Joseph speak. There is no record of anything Joseph said in any of the gospel writings about Jesus' birth. Once Matthew sets the scene of relational tension between Mary and Joseph, we actually see God's gracious intervention as he sends one of his angels to give a message to the distraught Joseph. Look with me at verse 20 and 21. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
In the midst of Joseph's personal turmoil, he receives through a dream both instruction and explanation from God. That is God's grace at work. We see in this message from heaven both God's work and God's plan. This messenger of God who is made to tell of God's truth and proclaim the glories of his creator announces to Joseph that this is not an accident, not a screw-up, that this is a divine pregnancy, and that this child has a divine purpose. First, we must see God's gracious instruction for Joseph. The angel tells Joseph exactly which option to take, and it was not what Joseph had decided Instead of breaking their engagement contract, Joseph is instructed to follow through with it and actually wed his betrothed, Mary, who was with child. Along with this instruction, the angel of God answers why this happened, or better yet, who made this happen? God was at work. This baby was conceived within Mary and was, it was not done or due to her indiscretion, but was due to divine conception. This was a work of the Holy Spirit. What a comfort to Joseph, but what a confusing concept. Honestly, every time a life is created by God, it is a miracle. But the divine pregnancy of the Messiah King is truly unique. One of a kind. But the angel from heaven does not stop at simply stating how God is at work. He proceeds with further instruction and explanation for Joseph regarding God's plan, what he will do. His divine purpose for this uniquely and divinely conceived child. The angel reveals that this child will be a son and tells Joseph that he will name him Jesus. Last week, Michael told us about the name Christ, that it was not a last name, but that it was a title like Messiah, and it meant anointed one. Here we find that God has given a name to the eternal king who would bring blessing to the whole world, and he decided that name would be Jesus. Why the name Jesus? The name comes from the name Joshua, pronounced Yahashua, or for Jesus it would just be the shorter version, Yeshua. Yahashua means God is salvation, and Yeshua is God saves. So why would this be the name of the Christ? For this reason, the Messiah is God's Redeemer, King, and He will save. That's what the text says this morning. This is and has always been God's plan. From eternity past, from creation of all things, to the fall of mankind, to the covenant promise with Abraham, to giving the law to his people in the Davidic covenant, in the proclamation of the prophets, God has been saying, I will save. 
And now he has provided the Savior and given him the name that proclaims what God has always said. God saves. It is important that we notice from our text this morning that Jesus will not just save, but he will save his people. And we will see in our study through Matthew, and we will see in all canon of Scripture that the people referred to here in the text is not just God's chosen people, the Jewish people, who would bring the blessing to the whole world, but it's all who repent and believe in the divine Redeemer King, in Jesus Christ, for salvation. Trusting that God cleanses them and makes them righteous through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Although this message is not popular, it is paramount that you understand salvation is exclusive. It is through Jesus Christ alone. There is salvation in no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It is only for those who repent and believe in Jesus for forgiveness and for eternal life with him. But why is salvation important? Why do I need forgiveness? Why is redemption even necessary? Our text this morning answers that question as well. And all scripture would answer, your sin. Jesus will save his people from their sins. We must understand what happened back in Genesis. God created everything perfect. He pronounced it good. And in this perfect creation, God made two people to bear his image. The holy creator dwelled with his people and gave them one good rule to follow because he loved them. But man believed a lie. They believed God does not love me. And they disobeyed their holy creator God. This is sin, and this separated them from God. They were kicked out. They could no longer experience the blessing of God's presence. But God gave a promise, a promise of one that would come from her seed, that would redeem what was lost and reconcile God back to his people and his people back to himself. God's purpose for the Messiah King is to bring blessing to the whole world in this specific way, by redeeming sinners for himself. That begs the question this morning, are you one of his redeemed? But this message from the angel is not the only message in our text this morning. The author, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, brings to light another message from God. One from a time period in Jewish history where God's promise and God's people were in danger. This message came from the prophet Isaiah to King Ahaz, one of the evil kings of Israel's history. And Matthew brings this up in relevance to the birth of the Christ, who would be called Jesus. Look with me at verse 22 and verse 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
Matthew states very clearly that the event of the birth of the Christ took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. We can see that this text lines up with the events that have taken place thus far. But we want to understand the text in context of which it was originally given as well. The Jewish readers of Matthew's gospel would have heard this and understood when this had taken place. The Jewish people, and specifically the line of the king of David, from which the promised Messiah was supposed to come, was on the edge of extinction. The people of God needed to be saved physically from the impending forces of the surrounding nations that were teaming up against them. King Ahaz did not want God's help, but God, through his prophet Isaiah, gave King Ahaz a sign. This sign. What we need to know is that there was a child born of a young woman, and that child's name was Meir Shalal Hashbaz. This child's father was Isaiah, and the mother was Isaiah's wife. This sign was to the king, and was that by the time the child was old enough to know right and wrong, that the opposing nation's kings would be gone. The birth of this child and the death of these kings would confirm God's covenant promise. This came to pass for them in a near sense, and God's people were saved and God's promise secure. But in a fuller and more complete way, Matthew states Jesus' birth is the fulfillment of God actually keeping his covenant promise. Matthew uses the word fulfill here in our text to mean to fill out or to bring to a designed end. The birth back in Isaiah's time was a sign pointing forward to God keeping his promise. But the birth here that we see in our text is the provision of God's promise in the coming of the divine redeemer king. Let's look at the requirements of this Messiah prophecy, this messianic prophecy, and see how it lines up with the birth of Jesus. First, we see the virgin shall conceive. As we saw earlier, the birth of Jesus was a uniquely and divinely caused event. Matthew has gone to every extent to help us see that there was no human father involvement in the conception of the Christ. Look with me at the genealogy, if you just look up or back a page. Interestingly enough, the most frequently used word in chapter 1 of Matthew, at least in the ESV, is, is actually the word father. If you look at the genealogy, Matthew knows and understands this word. He's not missing in his vocabulary, but he uses it quite frequently. Matthew went through and listed out all the fathers and traced them from Abraham all the way to Joseph. If he wanted to state that Joseph was the father of Jesus, he would have continued in the same exact pattern he had used. On top of that, he mentions four mothers in the genealogy. And each time he names this way, in this pattern, that he would name the father, then the child, and that it was by the mother. With intentional contrast, he actually separates Joseph from Jesus and puts Mary in between them, stating that Mary was Jesus' mother, 
he didn't state that Joseph was Jesus' father, and he did it on purpose. Then in the account of Jesus' birth, Matthew specifically states that Mary was pregnant before they came together. There was no consummation of their marriage. They were still in the waiting and engagement period. More than that, Matthew himself states that Mary was with child from the Holy Spirit. More than that, the angel of God said to Joseph in the message, that which is conceived in her. There's that word, the virgin shall conceive. And the angel said, that which is conceived in her is from where? The Holy Spirit. Based on the authority of the inspired word of God, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ is absolutely affirmed. He was intentional. God was intentional. But there is more to this prophet's message. The child would be born and it would be a son, which we see in the message from the angel. She will bear a son and they will call his name from the prophecy, Emmanuel. We need to understand that just because Emmanuel and Jesus don't match, that it's not an error. The child's name is to be Jesus. The angel told Joseph, you will call his name Jesus. But here the prophet says, they, they shall call his name Emmanuel. This is meant to be a title or a description So how does the title of Emmanuel, which means God with us, fit with Jesus, the Redeemer King? We know that the child to be born would be a man, flesh and bone. But what man has the power to save people from sins? What man can provide forgiveness to the unrighteous? How can humanity's problem of being separated from God be resolved by just a human king. Only God can do these things. You cannot fix yourself. Our righteousness is like filthy rags to God. The arrival of this divinely and uniquely born Redeemer King is not just an indication of God with us in the sense that he is rooting for us or he's helping us out. It's, it's much more. This text has been ramping up to this very statement to indicate explicitly and overtly that this Redeemer King is himself, God with us. The miraculous event we celebrate each year is not about the delivery of a child. It's to celebrate the incarnation of God. Jesus coming in the flesh. In theology, the term for this is hypostatic union. There are four basic boundary lines we must not cross. If we do, we enter into heresy. There must be no mixture and no confusion, no separation and no division. Humanity and deity, two natures, one person, Jesus Christ. United yet distinct, truly human and truly divine. 100% God and 100% man. But what is more important than the doctrinal fact of the hypostatic union is what we see here in the incarnation of the Christ about who God is. What we see about God is that he showed initiative. 
I was in early elementary school when I first learned this word initiative. I remember coming home and excited to tell my mom of this new word I had learned. Granted, I did not really know what I was getting myself into by sharing this information with my mother, but I quickly saw how excited my mom got when I shared the word that I had learned was initiative. I'm pretty sure I was sick of hearing that word by the end of the week because it had perfect application to my home life (laughs) in showing initiative to clean my room, showing initiative to take out the trash, thinking ahead and perceiving the needs around me and taking action to help. What we must not miss this morning is the amazing initiative we see on God's part. The word initiative should gain a whole new richness and depth when applied to God because initiative is love in action. God took the initiative in redemption to enter into our messed up world. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Why? Because Only man can pay for man's sins. But only God can satisfy the wrath of God. If God was not loving and only holy, he would demand that we are perfect and we would fail. If God was only love, he would have no power to save because he would be a bad judge. But God is holy and God is love. Can you see this morning that God is rich in mercy To provide what he demands. He provided Jesus Christ, the God-man, who alone can save us from our sins. In the incarnation of Christ, we see the never-ending, unstoppable, ever-faithful love of an almighty God for undeserving sinners like you and me. Hear me this morning. If God does not step in, you are hopeless and lost. If God does not intervene, you are condemned. You are found guilty of treason against a holy God who cannot let sin go unpunished. But God, but God so loved the world that he gave, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but will have ever lasting life. Because God is love, he initiated. God became one of us so he could live the perfect life that you could not. So he would die the death that you deserve. So he could satisfy the wrath of God on your behalf and rise again in victory over death and the grave to save you from your sins because you cannot save yourself. God has been faithful to keep his promise to provide a savior. And in his provision, we see an amazing act of love. He sent the best. He gave us his son. He gave us himself. Jesus is God with us. Jesus is the blessing that is for all the nations, because he is God. When we look through the Old Testament, we see that God's presence is the greatest blessing. Adam and Eve experienced it in the Garden of Eden. They walked with God. 
the nation of Israel experienced this blessing in the tabernacle and then in the temple when God came down to dwell in the holy of holies, to be with his people. The goal is to be with God, but our sin prevents that from being possible. Get this, Jesus is the answer. Jesus came to save his people from their sins and is God with us. But Jesus is not here now. When he left, he sent the Holy Spirit to be with us. Scripture speaks of the Holy Spirit as a down payment, a guarantee of a future inheritance. An inheritance of being with God permanently for eternity. Do you see the importance of God's presence? From start to finish in Scripture, God's presence is the prize. We were made to be with him. Think about how God relates to mankind from the beginning of Scripture. In nature, in creation, God made everything. He is the creator. Everything else is the created. We see God above us. And then in the law, he revealed himself as holy, and we see us as sinners. We see from the law that God is against us. But hear me, in the face of Jesus Christ, we see God with us. And for those who repent and believe in Jesus Christ for salvation alone, at the cross we see God for us. Because of God's initiative, he alone is worthy of praise and thanks. What about you? What is your relationship with your creator? I want you to know this morning that you are accountable to God and tomorrow is not promised to you. What is holding you back this morning from trusting in Jesus for salvation? Eternity hangs in the balance and that thing that's holding you back, what is it? Is it that valuable? God is calling you this morning to turn from your sins and believe in Jesus Christ for salvation of your soul so that you too can enjoy the blessing that comes with God's presence. Don't walk away unchanged by the amazing love of an almighty God that we see in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Reach out to God and ask him to give you a new heart, a heart that loves him. This morning we've seen the perplexing scandal that Joseph was dealing with as well as God's gracious intervention to give instruction to Joseph. But did Joseph actually obey? Joseph had a choice to make. Am I going to obey the instruction of God at great personal and social risk to myself? Let's see how Joseph responded, starting in verse 24 of our text. When Joseph woke up from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph's response to this message of instruction and provision by God was one of obedience. The angel told him to wed Mary and to name the baby Jesus. Joseph knew who this baby was. He knew that this baby was the Redeemer King, 
And Joseph was willing to get on board with God's plan, with God's will. Let me ask you something this morning. Do you know who Jesus is? If your answer is no, I hope that you've listened this morning as we've seen him to be nothing less than the eternal king who brings blessing of salvation and God's presence. So now you do know. The question for you then is, how will you respond? Will you continue in rebellion or submit and respond to God's call so that he can make you his child? You may be here this morning and saying, I know all this, I agree, and I'm even doing things that show I know who Jesus is. The more important question and pointed question for you is to ask, does Jesus know you? Does Jesus know you savingly? Flip over a couple pages with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7 Verses 21 and following. Not everyone who says to me, this is Jesus speaking, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. All right, I'm good, I'm obeying, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, we're on the same page. Keep reading. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. God's plan for redemption is not about external obedience. It's about internal surrender. It's not about making bad people good. It's about making dead people alive. Works alone will not save you. Only God can save you and give you a new heart. A heart that wants to do the will of the Father and has the right motives in doing so, the right affections for him. A heart that clings to Jesus as Lord, Savior, King, and treasure and knows that all the while they are weak and Jesus is the one that clings to them. We have come through the text and out the other side this morning and we need to ask our question. Why was this text written? The answer is wrapped up in, like a gift, the names of the given Messiah. In the names we find the divine purpose and the divine person of this eternal king. Jesus and Emmanuel. God saves and God with us. The focus of Christmas ought to be centered upon this singular truth that God has come to save his people for himself. God has kept his promise. 
That is the faithfulness of our God. And God has initiated. He stepped in. That is the love of our God. Will you this Christmas season behold and embrace by faith the steadfast love of God revealed for you in Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your amazing love and faithfulness. You alone are trustworthy. You alone are worthy of all praise. Thank you for coming to us when we would not, when we could not come to you. For providing salvation for those who were your enemies. We thank you for making a way so that we could experience the amazing gift of eternal life with you. And we ask that you would be glorified, Lord, and honored in and through us. Give us a greater longing for you that we may be satisfied alone with you. And it's in your precious name. In the name of Jesus, our Emmanuel, we pray. Amen.